Hello and welcome to Fragments of Fear, a podcast celebrating the lesser known and lesser appreciated Jolly. I'm Rachel Nisbet and with me is my co-host, PC Imstock. So we're feeling a little bit tired this evening. Peter, you've just fallen asleep in dread probably of record- <laughs> recording another episode. <laughs> yeah, usually I reserve that for when I'm watching films, but um, I woke up 15 minutes before we started recording, so feeling slightly punch drunk over here, but we should be okay. We'll, we'll get through it once we start, start going. Yeah. <laughs> the energy that we needed to amass to start tackling these films and try to well, I just had espresso, so hopefully hopefully I'll be fine. That's good, yeah. You won't be able to sleep probably after that. I oh, know that won't bother me. I actually didn't go to sleep last night. I was too wired that I just seemed to lie awake lie awake in my bed at eight in the morning listening to Daft Punk at like full volume, having a wee party. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm sure your neighbours will appreciate yeah. stuff like that. Oh yeah, I'm sure they absolutely love it. Well, um, so, a bit all over the place at the minute. Yeah, but you, you've been kept quite busy. Yeah, I've got a lot of projects on, so I think that's why my I've gone fully nocturnal now, is just from like, finishing the last deadline. We always do our announcements kind of each month, or Peter usually does it because you're the one in the know, but um, Vinegar Syndrome have just announced that they are releasing a box set called Forgotten Shally Volume 1, so presumably there's going to be several, we hope, like estimates on the number of Forgotten Shally box sets we'll get, um, but that's really exciting news. Yeah. Um, and Vinegar Syndrome basically want to, like, obviously they're still going to release all the American films that they do, but they want to move more into the European market. So I think we're going to be seeing a lot of Italian and Spanish films coming out from them um, over the next year or so. But yeah, anyway, I did extra for that box set, but I, w- I won't say what title it is, just in case I'm not allowed to say yet, but I think I can say I'm involved. I've seen other people say they've been involved in it, so I think I can get away with that. Working away, getting that done. Oh, very cool. Yeah, looking forward to that box set because those films that are included in the box set, The Killer is One of Thirteen, Trauma and The Police Are Blundering in the Dark, they've not really been available in any any good versions before. So very exciting to see um, all of those on Blu-ray. Yeah, definitely. And like the whole point of this podcast, as we always keep banging on about, is that we're wanting to showcase these more obscure shallies. So to see Vinegar Syndrome actively like kind of shine a light on them is ideal for us. I mean, that's kind of what we want. And yet surprising titles. I mean, I certainly would never have predicted that we would have got those. I mean, like the police are blending in the dark, especially that's really quite well, until fairly recently, that's been very rare. Yeah, it's a fairly obscure title. Yeah, so exciting. I'm, I'm intrigued to see what they do next. I have a I have a a rough idea of some of the films that might be coming out from them um, and they're very good um, choices but yeah we'll see how that goes hopefully we get like volume 10 and then we'll be put out of business on the podcast because there'll be all these extras on the films that we usually cover <laughs> yeah they, they won't be so forgotten anymore no exactly we can, be... we can certainly live with that yeah be like, we'll be doing our podcast going oh the lesser appreciated Shelley," and everyone's like oh they've all had blu-ray releases now yeah <laughs> obsolete no more vhs transfers exactly um, the only other title I think, I'm not sure if we mentioned it or not before, but uh, David Gregory mentioned that Severin are doing um, The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward. Yeah. But it seems to be it seems to be like maybe it was rumoured before and now it's more official. I think that's the thing. I think it's a rumour that's been going around for so long that now that it's official, we're kind of like, oh, is, is that news? I, I don't know. But yeah, I, th- I think I think it's news. For some, yeah. It's news for someone that's listening. So that's fine. Yeah. And I provided scans for the artwork for that one for oh. the from the Lucandina and the Footbust set. Excellent. Uh, hopefully that'll show up on the disc somewhere. Yeah, I hope so. 
better than. <laughs> We've got a, a couple of new patrons. We'd like to take a moment to welcome them. So a very warm welcome to Kyle Anderson, Chris Wilson, and Ulf Larsson. Thank you so much for pledging and being patrons. We're really grateful for your support and it makes us able to um, do the patron exclusive episodes. And as you might hear, your funds have provided the opportunity for Rachel to pick up a new new microphone. Yeah, I'm, I've got a much better quality mic now, which hopefully you can hear the difference. I've got in a bit of a funny position because I've not got a proper hot filter on it yet. So it's at a bit of an angle but I think Peter's already said he can hear the difference so your money is paying for hosting it's like paid for our like microphone upgrades and things so we're really grateful so thank you to everyone and if you want to become a patron and get access to our previously recorded as well as all future patron episodes just head over to patreon.com slash fragments pods and you can choose between one of two levels either the one dollar Armando Crispino level or the $5 Duccio Tesari level where you get access to our bonus episodes. And we also had a competition in the last episode where we covered The Murder Clinic. We asked you, our dear listeners, which was your favourite film based on Ernesto Gastaldi script. And the winner is Noah Sudret, who picked his um, favourite Gastaldi film, which was Day of Anger. Oh, great. So um, you win a copy. Yeah, excellent choice. So you win a copy of the film arts Murder Clinic Blu-ray. So congratulations, Nara. We'll send you a message and work out the details. Well done. Um, so as always, we'll be talking about today's film in detail. So there will be spoilers ahead in this podcast. So you have been warned. Today's episode focuses on Maurizio Prado's 1973 shadow, Passi de Danza Su Una Lama de Razo, a.k.a. Death Carries a Cane. Hey, there's a man. He's killing. Killing? Killing Alberto? Oh, God, he's murdering that girl. The woman, what was she called? Marta. Marta Guerra. Where does she live? Piazza della Fontana 6. Are you going to bring her in? Sure. It was a meat wagon. Um, and in this episode, we return to the genre's golden period, but a year on from our last golden period title, The Crimes of the Black Cat, which came out in 1972. 1970 to 1973 is considered the most fruitful period for the shadows, so inevitably it's one that we're keen to return to, um, hence delving into a golden period title uh, once again. And this will probably be our most talked about period in the genre on the podcast, just simply due to the volume of films that came out during this time. Death Carries a Cane came out at the tail end of the golden period. The film was obviously influenced by Dario Argento's Animal Trilogy, as everything really was um, during this period. I feel like I kind of constantly say that, but as you know, it's... It's It's difficult not to. Yeah, it's like, feels like you're stating the obvious, but... Yeah. It's it's just the way it is because that is how successful those films were. It's basically everything post nineteen seventy, like to nineteen kind of the mid nineteen seventies, were based on those. Uh, yeah, so we're we're seeing an influence here from the Animal Trilogy. But Death Carries a Cane also comes in the wake of the Jali that were produced right off the back of Argento's early Jali. Um, so we're seeing an influence here from the likes of Luciano Arcoli's Death Walks films um, and other successful Jali of nineteen seventy one and nineteen seventy two. And at this stage, we're seeing how formulaic the Jali has become, adhering to that Argento template, um, but with certain elements of substituted, um, whilst the archetypes and tropes for the most part remain. Certainly in the case of Death Carries a Cane, we get a sense of the quick turnaround of these films. There's more of a low-budget feel here, and elements feel at times unfinished and rushed, um, presumably in an attempt to get the film out to market as quickly as possible. We can see how the success of certain actors, in this case Nevis Navarro and Simon Andrew, 
in other Jali led to their casting and later production such as this. And if audiences enjoyed actors such as um, Navarro and Android in previous Jali, um, they'd be more like, likely to see them in a new production. And that applies to the genre as a whole and accounts for why we often see um, certain faces or combinations of actors appear uh, time and time again. Mm-hmm. So here we're seeing the Jali very much at saturation point, uh, soon to fall out of favour. And as a result, there's potentially less creativity here just due to the derivative nature of these films at the time. I think um, I think you bring up some interesting points in how some of these films were quite have a feel where they're quite rushed and sort of they needed to bring, be brought out quite quickly to meet the, the audience demand. And time was of the essence, so maybe they prioritised getting them out in time rather than spending time working out a, a perfect script and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think it certainly feels like that with this title anyway. And as much as some of these earlier titles were a bit more low budget, but maybe they've just felt a bit more slick because they were well scripted or plotted or whatever. But um, a title like this, it feels a bit more slapdash, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, you can just see a wee bit of a decline. I mean, I know there are some films from this year that were very good and of decent quality, but um, yeah, you do start to see more questionable titles at this point, I would say. Yeah. As you mentioned, the film is directed by Maurizio Prado, and he was born in Rome in, on April 16, 1931. And he entered the film industry more or less by chance when he became the assistant production secretary on Giorgio Simonelli's Canzone d'Amore in 1953. And he continued to work in the industry, mainly with writer-director Emi Masalvi, before making his own directorial debut with spaghetti western Ramon the Mexican in 1966 a film that he'd written himself. It did fairly decent numbers at the box office, making 258 million lira. And Prodo followed it up with with a quite charming heist thriller, 28 Minutes for $3 million in 1967. It's a quite enjoyable romp starring uh, Richard Harrison. It did mediocre box office figures at a little over 111 million lira. His next project was war film Churchill's Leopards. It's a men-on-a-mission war film where Richard Harrison again stars alongside um, Klaus Kinski and Giacomo Rossi-Stewart, did slightly better at the box office, making 244 million lira. Uh, but what was more, even more important for Prado was that it was the first time he worked with veteran screenwriter Arpa de Riso, whom Prado would go on to write five more scripts with, and all but one film by Prado himself. Prado's next project, his fourth feature, was inspired by, as you mentioned, the Dario Dentist, The Bird with a Crystal Plumage. And once again, he wrote in collaboration with Dario as well as Spanish writer-director Alfonso Balcazar and George Martin or Francisco Martinez Celerio who would also go on to play a role in the film. The script would be called Death Carries a Cane in English in Italian it's the rather more poetic Pasi di Danza su una lama di rasoio or Dan Steps on the Edge of a Racer. Um, so as always, I'll just give a quick overview of the plot just to re-familiarise everyone with the storyline for Death Carries a Cane. Um, so Kitty, a young Swedish woman living in Rome, is visiting a scenic viewpoint in the city with elderly relatives where she comes across a viewfinder. Eager to take in the view, she scans the landscape, stumbling across the view of an apartment window where she sees a struggle between a naked woman and a man. The woman is brutally stabbed by a man donned in the archetypal Jago villain fashion. He limps away from the scene of the crime, but before Kitty can fully comprehend what's happening, the viewfinder runs out of money 
money and the image goes black. Desperately trying to feed change into the machine, the image comes back, but by then the killer is gone and all that remains is a knocked over chestnut stand that he has disturbed in his escape. Met by her partner Alberto, Kitty tells him of what she's witnessed and the pair go to the police. Alberto immediately arouses police suspicion as he also has a limp and was late to meet Kitty at the time of the murder. Alberto and Kitty begin to investigate the murder, trying to ensnare the killer with added help from Inspector Marugi. However, as their sleuthing progresses, the body count rises and the pair are put in very real danger. Discovering that the killer committed his crime with a cane, will Alberto and Kitty be able to successfully identify the impaired culprit and what does a dance school have to do with these crimes? Um, so we'll just talk a little bit about um, the leading um, players in the film. Um, unlike some of the other films we've talked about, there's probably less to say about um, the actors in this one bar, um, the main performers. I think that'd be fair to say, right? Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. So Kitty was played by the Spanish actress Nevis Navarro. Um, who just edges it for me as my personal favourite actress in the Jago. Navarro was born in Almeria, Spain in 1938. Prior to her work as an actress, she worked as a model, and she started her career as an actress in the mid-1960s, primarily in westerns, many of which were filmed in her native Almeria. Um, she appeared in the well-known Ringo films, A Pistol for Ringo and The Return of Ringo, and of course directed by Duccio Tessari, who you've already mentioned. She's also in other westerns of the era, such as Sergio Salima's The Big Gun Down, as well as a few stints in 60s spy films. And Navarro was often credited under English pseudonym Susan Scott. Um, but Navarro is primarily um, known for her work with Italian director Luciano Ercoli. Um, Ercoli was a director and producer and produced many of Navarro's early films, including Tassari's aforementioned Ringo films. Ercoli and Navarro collaborated together on five of his directorial efforts, The Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion, Death Walks on High Heels, Death Walks at Midnight, The Magnificent Daredevil and The Ripoff, and she was somewhat of a muse for the director. They married in 1972 and remained so until his death in 2015. Uh, Luciano Arcoli's father, a very wealthy man, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's an industrialist, but I don't know if that's just because we always say everyone's an industrialist on this podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, so take that with a pinch of salt, but I'm pretty sure he, he had great wealth. I'm not entirely sure if that was where it was from, but yeah. Anyway, um, upon his death, Luciano was able to retire from the film industry on his inheritance. However, Navarro continued to work in the film industry in the 70s and 80s, um, retiring in 1989. And while she's not as celebrated as some of the more well-known actresses of the Jalo, um, Navarro worked extensively in the genre. Alongside her Jalo with Ercole and her role in Prado's Death Carries a Cane, she appeared in supporting roles in Sergio Martino's All the Colors of the Dark and Roberto Bianchi Montero's So Sweet, So Dead. Um, she appeared in more sexualized fair later on in her career, um, appearing in three of the infamous Emmanuel films, as well as other erotic fair. Her characters often feel less passive than many of the heroines in Jali. Um, she's fairly skilled at playing ambiguous characters, often playing up the duplicitous nature of her roles. And they often feel fairly investigatory in nature. She's not really an overt damsel in distress style heroine compared to some of her contemporaries uh, working within the genre. Kitty's limping artist boyfriend, Alberto Morosini, is played by Austrian Robert Hoffman. Hoffman was born on August 30th, 1939 in Salzburg, where he grew up and attended grammar school. And I was quite surprised to find out that after a stay in Sweden, which I haven't been able to find out anything more about. He, his acting aspirations brought him to Paris, where he attended the drama school of Paul Vanek. He earned money on the side by modelling and working in advertising, and possibly somewhat helped by his slight resemblance to Alain Delon. 
like mm-hmm. a blonde Alain Delon type. As soon as he was out of drama school, his agent asked him to audition for the role of Robinson Crusoe in a French-English co-production. He got the role and he became somewhat of an overnight star once the series was broadcast all over Europe in 1964. He made his Italian debut in Carlo Lizzani's Wake Up and Kill and he appeared in films such as Grand Slam where he apparently had a stormy on-set relationship with Klaus Kinski in Massimo Delamano's Black Veil for Lisa in 1968 alongside Luciano Pelosi and John Mills and during the filming of Alfonso Brescia's Nights and Loves of Don Juan where he starred alongside Barbara Boucher, Edwish Fennec, Ira Furstenberg, Annabella Incontrera and Lucretia Love Hoffman fell off a horse and fractured his right femur. He was operated on in Madrid, an operation that almost led to him having to amputate his leg, which forced him into a long period of convalescence. He appeared in uh, Ernesto Gastaldi's Lonely Violent Beach, as well as Brescia's Naked Girl Killed in the Park and Roberto Lenz's Basmo. Made a few more films in Italy, but he worked primarily in TV during the 1980s, appearing in Tartut and Dallas as well for a couple of episodes. And towards the end of the 90s, his acting career slowed down and he retired from the business in the early 2000s. We discussed Hoffman a little bit in the latest Patreon episode of Door Into Darkness and we we agreed that we're perhaps not his greatest fans. Yeah, I think we're both a bit more ambivalent to him. I'm sure we'll touch upon that uh, when we talk about him and Kitty and uh, their roles in the film. Yeah, nothing. I mean, yeah. it's interesting that you made that comment about him looking a bit like Alan Delon because that's not something I've ever really thought about. But now that you said it, it makes perfect sense. But I wonder if... I mean, people talk a lot about actresses being cast on their looks, but maybe his looks were maybe overshadowing his acting at times. I feel really mean saying that, but yeah, I don't know. I feel I agree with you there. He's one of those actors that does some parts really well, but he maybe didn't have a fantastic range. Yeah, I think that's fair to say, isn't it? I just feel like sometimes his performances are quite static, um, quite yeah. paid. Yeah. Uh, so one of the other more notable roles in the film is, is Inspector Marighi, uh, played by George Martin. Um, the actor commonly known as George Martin was born in Barcelona in 1937 as Francisco Martinez Silero. Although predominantly an actor, Martin also directed and wrote, and he was one of the writers of Death Carries a Cane's screenplay. Uh, Martin's performance in Death Carries a Cane was one of his last roles as an actor. Um, interestingly, the last film he appeared in, Lost at a House Garamish, also featured a performance from Nevis Navarro. The two actors also worked together on Duccio to a Pistol for Ringo and The Return of Ringo, as well as his 1966 spy film Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. So another easily recognisable face is that of Marco, who's played by Simon Andreo Trubat, who was born in La Puebla on Mallorca on January 1st, 1941. He spent his childhood on the island and moved to Madrid in the 1960s, where he worked regularly in the theatre while filming. Uh, He also got sort of regular top billing in the Spanish productions that he appeared in sometimes as Simon Andrew. His career really took off in the 1970s, or at least his Italian career, starting with Luciano Ecoli's Forbidden Thoughts of a Lady Above Suspicion alongside Susan Scott and Dagmar Lasander. He's got a very extensive filmography and probably most well known for his work with Luciano Ecoli, as well as appearing in The Great Swindle and The Blood Spattered Bride for Vincente Aranda. Mostly working in Spanish cinema, but he's also worked with Paul Verhoeven, Milos Forman, and even turning up in Bridget Jones' film in The Chronicles of 
Narnia and in the James Bond film Die Another Day. While he's not quite on the level of George Hilton, I think Andreo shares some of the same qualities as George Hilton in that he's a very he's charming but also able to pr- portray his characters with with an undercurrent of menace or or danger. Would you would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. He's got that debonair quality, but I'm yeah, he's very good at playing menacing roles. And I think I made a comment about this later in my notes, but it's interesting when you compare George Hilton and Edwidge Fedek um, with like Nevis Navarro and um, Simon Andrew because they're very like similar in terms of the kind of I've said Nevis is not so much a damsel in distress type, but they seem to kind of be like the Spanish version of those roles in a way. Like they yeah. tended to be cast together in many productions, and uh, yeah, like you say, he was very much in the vein of um, George Hilton. They tended to have that like kind of double billing almost together. Um, a very good report between those actors. Definitely, yeah, they've got really good chemistry, which I again I'm sure we will return to when we talk about this because I feel that the chemistry that they have is so brilliant it's it's a shame that we don't really see it in this film yeah completely obviously some more actors in this film and some secondary characters but there's not a whole lot to say about them Anuska Borova who plays the the dual roles of of sisters didn't appear in anything else and then of course Luciano Rossi who everybody recognises as somebody who turned up in in the Ercole films has a fairly small role here yeah quite a lot of minor characters though in this one Um, other than I think yeah the twin sister role I don't think the others are particularly prominent are they Um, no it's surprising that 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 was her only um, cinematic kind of role because I mean she's pretty decent in it I thought I mean I could definitely see yeah. in films of a similar vein but yeah I don't know why this was her only performance like many actresses of the time who disappeared from the business the answer is probably that she got married and stopped working in the business yeah this is the most likely explanation it, it seems to be a, a theme for the, the actresses that more or less just disappeared in the you know um, I was on Twitter a couple of weeks ago and I feel really bad because I can't remember a name for the life of me but you know we did the podcast about um, the crimes of the black cat but one of the actresses yep. in it oh, you know the girlfriend at the start oh yeah in yeah the pub um i tweeted something about the film and she'd replied to it and we were had a wee conversation it was really nice and she was yeah the actress from the film oh cool granted in a very yep. very small that role bad. though i didn't her, she didn't really speak any english we were trying to kind of google translate and stuff and have a conversation but i tried to ask her about her about how she found it and working um on with pastore but i didn't really have a conversation about it but no she seemed really nice so that was good but i didn't managed to pick any details or information out of her oh that's cool not much to say though i mean it was such a small role but yeah yeah but still come out of the woodwork now and again yeah Um, so Death Carries a Cane is a very trope-heavy giallo, which is sure to satisfy those that prefer their jolly in the Argento vein. We have a straight-edged razor as a murder weapon, a traditional giallo disguise of black leather gloves, raincoat and fedora, psychosexual themes, murder set pieces and amateur sleuthing. And it's very much a traditional whodunit uh, with various MacGuffins and leads that unveil themselves throughout the film. In some giallo, you have a scenario where you're initially introduced to a cast of characters and over the course of the film, certain people are murdered, therefore they're eliminated um, from your pool of suspects and until the the cast is whittled down to a few last individuals. However, in Death Carries a Cane, that's not really the case. Uh, the murder victims tend to be introduced into the story as it goes on. Um, so we discover new leads and characters um, over the course of the film who play their part in unlocking the mystery, um, but often coming to their, de- their demise after revealing key information and providing some sort of clue to our protagonists. 
Uh, so yeah, it's quite quite an interesting one because it's not in that style where you've got you almost like the kind of locked room chalet that we've talked about, where it's like there's your cast of characters and you learn about all their different motivations and try and work out the connection. It's more based on the smaller number of characters, and then we have these characters come in and unveil yeah key bits of information, which I just said, I'm just repeating myself. Yeah, but, um, and and then quickly killed off. Yeah, very quickly killed off. It's like the minute characters introduced, they're pretty much killed off the next scene. Yeah, I agree with you that it's a it's a trope heavy thriller, and the way it starts off with with Kitty seeing the the murder is obviously inspired by you could say Rear Window, but of course the bird with the crystal plumage is the main influence here. And I think I think the film mirrors the bird with the crystal plumage in a few ways. Kitty and Alberto feels very similar to Sam and Julia, albeit with a gender switch, really. In Bird with the Crystal Plumage, Sam is the writer visiting Rome, and in Death Carries a Cane, Kitty is the Swede who's in who's in Rome. And Alberto even looks at the police inspector when they first meet, and in sort of a similar way to the way Susie Kendall's Julia greets um, Enrico Maria Salerno's inspector, like they've got a previous relationship or like they know each other from before. And I think Inspector Marugi feels very much like it's based on Salerno's inspector from from The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Yeah, absolutely. That's an interesting point about the gender switch, because it's not something I really considered. But no, you're right. When thinking about it, it really does kind of mirror that plot from The Bird with the Crystal Plumage um, and the characters within it. Then Kitty, obviously thinking back to the killing as well, trying to pick out new bits of information, is not exactly similar to the way that, that we go back to the, the first murder sequence in bed with a crystal plumage but somewhat similar yeah i mean there's not so much a case of trying to um unlock a memory or try and find a piece of information in this one is it because that's obviously the typical like argento trope but yeah here it's more a case of like she sees something and that's cut short and then it's trying to like say um find that relevant information and go down these different trajectories and uncover more of the mystery it's quite funny the way that kit is swedish here and obviously her relatives are swedish they make some com- comment about alberto what is it though he's a, he's a typical italian lacy not like the swedish because prado seems to have references to sweden pop out all through his career in in 28 minutes for three million dollars they're supposed to take off with, with a diamond to stockholm I, if i remember correctly the girlfriend in death's Steps in the Dark is Swedish, and in Prado's later Thrilling Love, the girlfriend is Swedish as well. So there seems to be an ongoing theme with Prado. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder what the connection is there, because that certainly comes across as deliberate. I wonder if there's some sort of relation or someone he knows or just a fascination with the country. Yeah. I, I completely forgot when I watched it again, actually, that she was Swedish. So I was like, oh, yeah. And then I, I love that line about, um, yeah, Italians being lazy, not like the Swedish. I was like, I need to pick Peter's brain about that one. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah like you've talked about uh the bird of the crystal plumage and the similarities there and but there's also an obvious parallel here between uh the chalet of luciano arcoli and death carries a cane uh, the film's opening sequence in which kitty finds herself a uh, witness to a murder that she's powerless to stop obviously references alfred hitchcock's rear window and um, but also mirrors the opening scene from arcoli's death box at midnight in which nevis navarro's character sees a brutal murder take place in the building opposite the film's title itself is reminiscent of arcoli chalet and uh, with the use of the word death followed by a verb and that's the case in both the italian and english titles uh, which 
slightly vary in meaning, um, but both adopt that Ercole-like title. And again, that makes the film feel like somewhat of a third entry in an unofficial Ercole death trilogy. And of course, Prado would return once again to that kind of death title um, in his second Jalo, uh, Death Ducks in the Dark. And then, of course, we have the um, similarities in Ercole Chalet and Death Carries a Cane. Uh, with the use of the same kind of primary actors such as Nevis Navarro and Stephen Andrew and like you said Luciana Rossi who play characters in the same vein as um, some of their previous performance albeit maybe slightly watered down versions but I'd attribute that more to the script because I think overall these characters do feel a little bit less dynamic here I think maybe less oh, yeah. fleshed out than like their equivalents in Arcoli's work completely agree I think that's one of the main problems with the film for me like you say Nevis Navarro is a, a firm favourite of yours and she's a favorite of mine as well and i think i think she's not used to her advantage here uh, because of the sort of i wouldn't say poorly written but at least underwritten character i like her the most in akoli's films where she's like this sort of plucky resourceful heroine and really charming and i really really like the slightly kind of bitchy character that she plays in forbidden photos or all the colors of the dark but she feels like i said she feels very much watered down here and she's just there's not all that much there in terms of character yeah i mean and presumably you'd be coming to Death Carries a Cane off the back of watching her Coley Shelley. I mean, presume that's how most people watch this film is because they like Nevis Navarro's performance in, in those films and they come here. Yeah. Um, and I think for that reason, and because she's billed so highly and she, you know, she's on the cover of the, the poster and on the DVD and stuff, um, you'd expect her to feature quite predominantly throughout. And I might be biased because like I'm a fan of hers. I just feel yeah, that she is really underutilised here. Um, it starts off very much as her story, um, but somewhere along the line, it just becomes more about Hoffman's character and as we said we just like I personally don't find him that engaging um, as an actor no. I don't find his character particularly engaging and I just wanted Kitty to have more of an active sleuthing role granted she takes part in the prostitution sting and she's very much the focus of the climax but I kind of feel for chunks of the film her character kind of languishes in the background um, whilst we watch Alberto take a more active role in the investigation and it's just not as lively as a performance as she delivers in Death Walks at Midnight or Forbidden Photos. Yeah there are nice moments like here and there but I think overall she does play second fiddle to Alberto and I think that's to the death detriment of the film to be honest i'm in complete agreement here i thought about it earlier today that um like i mentioned before it's like a, a gender switch compared to the bird with a crystal plumage sam is this american writer in rome and you get this feeling of him being in a unknown place you get a similar kind of thing in um Mario Barvis, the girl who knew too much, where mm-hmm. they're in an alien city and they're not quite sure. And it, it brings something to the character that you know that they're in this city where they d- don't really know anybody and they're sort of left to fend for themselves. And here she's supposed to be Swedish, but nothing is made of that really, apart from that throwaway comment about him being lazy because he's an Italian. But there's nothing made of her being Swedish, being in a in a foreign city. So I think they've missed the chance to do something a little bit more interesting with the character there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting yeah, you make that comment about her being Swedish because it's hard to tell how long she's supposed to have been in Rome for as well. Like I think, you know, her and Alberta have been together like a fair amount of time. So is it like a fish out of water scenario or is she, you know, has she been there for 10 years? It's just underdeveloped. But I think like you say, it would be much better if they did make her more of a kind of 
fish out of the water in the city. Yeah, all the actors from Ercole's films are sort of a bit subdued in this compared to their roles in Ercole's films. It's like somebody's dialed them down from level 10 to level 5. Yeah. I mean, Luciano Rossi, who's normally a quite flamboyant character, he... (laughs) he's got one of his most normal and in this case maybe slash boring roles here yeah just i felt like i don't want to say like why are you in this film but just so underused here i was gonna say as well like um simon andre i just think like especially is underutilized as well um and we know that he can be fantastic like we mentioned previously especially in sinister roles that's where he really shines um so the audience misses out on a really great performance there and i can understand why he's given less screen time you know to direct suspicion away from his character but we don't even get that big villainous ending for him where he really could play up those aspects of his like you know acting ability yeah yeah but he doesn't he just doesn't get that villainous ending um he's shot and the explanation is handled by lydia rather than maybe him you know revealing what happened or showing some of his supposed madness but um, we'll get into that ending later but yeah we know that Andrew and Navarro have great chemistry so again it feels like a trick's been missed here maybe they could have had some interaction with one another because they don't think their characters really do interact but they interact barely um but then once again, when you reflect on the film, the character of Kitty doesn't really have much to do with Marco. Um, there's not much of a relationship there or investment between their characters. And Lydia is the only one with a proper personal connection to Marco, I would say. And in the film's ending, we have Lydia and Alberta walking off together. And then it feels more like Lydia is the main female character in that moment than Kitty. Yeah. So my personal opinion really is that the characterization here feels a little bit off um, especially in those connections between characters I mean there is some attempt to connect Kitty and Alberto with um, Marco but yeah it doesn't quite hang together I feel like Prado doesn't really know who his main characters are and like you want them to you want Andrew's Marco to be more prominent you want Kitty to be more prominent but you're just kind of left with Hoffman taking up too much time I don't know I feel like yeah. he just I just he's my biggest problem with this film I feel like I want to see everyone more than him yeah they're not playing to the strength of Navarro and Andrew, who does have the ability to engage, and Andrew would definitely be able to portray a character with, with some suspicion on him. As you said, you can see why they're doing the misdirection, but they don't use them in, they could have used them in a much better way and made this a much more memorable thriller than it is, I think. Yeah, because there's a semblance of something really great here, I would say. I mean, I know it's a lot more low budget and there's elements that could be changed and improved on. But I mean, I think, sorry, I just, I'm just talking gobbledygook there. Um, I think you're definitely onto something because I think if you look at the cast list here and if you look at the tropes that you mentioned that, that are involved, this has the makings of being a really great jallo. And when you look at it, I mean, it's not it's not terrible in any way, but it just feels a bit lackluster. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say that's a really good word to describe the film. It's en- enjoyable enough as a watch, but I think a wee bit frustrating because they could make it so much better and there'd only even need to be some tweaks to the script, you know, dial Hoffman's character back a bit more, you know, make Kitty yeah. a bit more prominent, have her and Andrew involved more in the ending. And I think it could be really something special, but unfortunately it just doesn't quite work. And I, I do attribute that mostly to the casting decisions um, as well as the motivation which we will get to I mean it's very much you've mentioned that a couple of times on the podcast but this is very much working with the established formula of having a murder every 15 minutes I actually timed in this time around just to have a good idea of how often they show up so you get the first murder at four minutes the second murder at 17 minutes 
the third murder at 34 minutes, the next at 45 minutes, and then the last murder at 103, and then you get the school set piece about 15 minutes later. So between 13 to 15 minutes until the next set piece. Yeah, I mean, the pacing's pretty decent, I would say. I think, you know, it delivers in terms of your murder set pieces. Like, obviously, you've timed it, and they, they're very much like clockwork, aren't they, when they come along? And yeah. when we do our bit about memorable scenes, we'll talk about our personal favourites. But um, yeah, I think they're handled really well very much in the Argento style yeah so it's not even that that's a problem it's, it's a funny one isn't it because the pacing I think is pretty decent for the film yeah. it's just more those the non-murder set pieces that don't always work I think it's attributed to slightly poor writing we talked about the characterization being lacking somewhat and I think also like the way the red herrings are played up and the, the desperation to get the cane in mm-hmm. it hurts the film because I mean Alberto's character with his limping and his he's spending his time out on the balcony stabbing these not mannequins um, oh yeah kind of like dummies aren't they it's a bit too much it's it's so obvious when he's standing there on the on the terrace and he's taking a knife to them it is just so obvious okay it's not going to be him yeah because immediately the police suspect him like we have the scene where like like that scene that you mentioned on the balcony and then we have the scene of kitty lying in the bed with the sheet gets pulled slowly um like across from her and then alberto takes the photo and it just feels very heavy-handed and nothing really comes of it and although kitty seems to suspect alberto but then it, it seems like that she is suspicious of him she wants to leave but then she changes her mind yeah i don't know but then we know it's not going to be him anyway so it just feels like a waste of time like okay i can understand if you're going down the bird of the crystal plumage strand where the police suspect him and he's trying to clear his name but then like alberto and inspector marugi start working together anyway so it doesn't really feel like that threat of the police closing in on him and doesn't feel like the threat of kitty suspecting that he might be the murderer we know he's not the murderer kitty gets over the fact that he's probably not the murderer pretty quickly as do the police so yeah, I don't know. It's just feel like they waste quite a bit of time on that red herring when we know it's not the case. Because you said it's so heavy-handed that if if it would have been handled a bit more delicately, he could have been a really good mm-hmm. possible suspect. But they're so desperate to to work these aspects in that that he's just removed quite early on from the equation. I think. Yeah, and like you mentioned there about the cane and how this is the thing that ties the murders together is that they find these blood prints by the murder victims and they work out that it's the imprint of a cane Um, and then obviously that turns out itself to be a bit of a red herring but it's this heavy handed thing again of oh everybody's got a cane everybody's limping and I know everyone's like oh Charlie or Ludacris anyway but even by the standards it just feels so crowbarred in the way it's done I don't know like it's yeah and the way they 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 pull one of the victims back with the cane it's just um, I think it hurts the film they could have worked that in more subtly yeah I think they try so hard to like fit the cane in and to make it this big part of the film that it doesn't quite work because it just seems a bit ridiculous. Which is your favourite set piece? I've made a list of my kind of favourites. Um, I think they're also like effective in, in that Argento style. Um, so there's quite a nice few to choose from. But the two that I really like are the car murder and yeah. the murder of Magda Hopkins. I mean, in the scene in which Magda is murdered, we have that fantastic moment where the killer is revealed to be lurking under the bed with yeah. his wee cane. And that kind of plays into you know, audiences' anxieties about the violation of a place you perceive to be safe so I think that's quite good because it feels very relatable I think we've all had that fear that someone's under the bed um yeah 
But yeah, the, the car death scene I really like as well, just because it's got all these disorientating camera angles and superimposed shots of potential suspects. So it, it feels a bit more dynamic than most of the film cinematography, which I find to be at times a bit pedestrian. But yeah, it feels like a, a really tense moment. And then the murder is pretty cruel, I would say. Is it quite grisly? Yeah, I was going to say, I suppose the murder of Magda is a bit, a bit more on the cruel side because you get that thing with the knife going through the bed sheet which I don't know what is about that but there's something that seems quite cold like just the way he like, smothers her with the pillow and then we've got that moment where he cuts through the bed sheet and then takes it back there's something quite like unsettling about it but yeah in the car scene I suppose it's, it's quite cruel as well and then we get that great shot where the windscreen wipers are wiping the yeah yeah it's like the windscreen wipers are wiping like the kind of blood away and it's to simulate the kind of look of a razor going up and down slashing a victim so it's such a really nice scene yeah. in the film. Um, so they're my, they're my personal two favourites. Um, what about you? I really like the car scene as well with Miss um, Ferretti. Possibly my favourite is the one with the old lady, Marta, because there's a slight fake out to it as well because she tells Alberto that she's going to tell him everything and you're, you're convinced that she's going to die, but she actually manages to live long enough to tell him that she wants to be paid before she's going to say anything and then she's off. But she can hear somebody climbing the roof and she goes looking for that candle and like there's a full jump scare with a cat before she meets her demise. So, and the way she grabs the straight racer before she's having a throat cut. So I think, I think that's a really effective set piece as well so there are a couple of, of good murder set pieces here yeah so like you say some great set pieces shame about the rest of the film yeah i know exactly because they, they are pretty cool like you were saying about the one with the the old lady and she's a plucky old broad isn't she she's gives it kind of good as she gets and she arms herself so that's I like I like her character, even that small bit that we saw of her. I thought she's a more effective character than I would say Robert Hoffman's Alberto is, even just in that short stint. Um, and I always like those yeah. kind of you know like those funny um kind of elderly characters. Uh, but yeah, those eccentric old ladies. Yeah, exactly. And I, I like that shot as well in that scene. You know where it's the shot down the staircase. It's one yeah. of my favourites in the film. Actually, I thought that was really cool. I suppose seeing as we were talking there about um the elderly lady, but yeah, like there's obviously humour here in the film, isn't there? And it's always Fairly yeah. intriguing to see how uh, scriptwriters balance thriller elements uh, with comedic ones in these films. And I suppose at times it's quite a tricky line to straddle, I would say. But I think it's something that's handled incredibly well in Argento's Animal Trilogy and Deep Red. Mm. Um, I often feel like Argento as a director doesn't really get enough credit for the way he balances this humour um, in his earlier childhood. Um I think the humour feels for the most part uh, genuinely funny and doesn't detract from the thrilling moments, which, as I said, is quite like difficult to manage that balance between those elements. Um, and if anything, I think those comedic elements, when they're handled successfully, they further serve to highlight like the nastiness of the murder set pieces and brutality um, that exists within the thriller. Yeah, It certainly seems to be the case here that Prado wanted to emulate that and um, the comedic stylings of Argento's Animal Trilogy. And there yeah. are some rather nice comedic moments. My personal favourite is the scene in which the inspector and Alberto and Kitty try and to lure the killer out um, in the park. And just when they think they've caught him, it's revealed that it's actually the police chief um, who's out, yeah, <laughs> soliciting much to everyone's embarrassment. Um, and it's just such a great scene because it's funny and we as the audience know at the stage in the film that, that again like you know what we said before we know that such and such isn't going to be the murderer we know the murder is not going to be revealed at this point so we, it's unlikely that it's going to be a significant reveal here in the park scene so we get that nice little comedic twist instead which is played for laughs um so i thought it was a really nice moment and then 
we've got other funny moments like when Lydia's speaking at the bag maker and he has all these grand ideas for how he's going to market oh, yeah. a snake bag <laughs> off the back of the killings. So um, I think, what does he say? He said something like that he wants a slogan to be how Manio's purses discover the killer in you or yeah. get a manual and you'll be a lady <laughs> killer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, it's like all things with these films, whether the humour lands or not is really a matter of personal taste. But I think for the most part that it does here, I think that's something that's handled fairly well. Um, maybe at times it veers a little too far into silliness. Like that scene where the trio infiltrate the dance school and Kitty says she needs to go pee-pee, which makes me fucking cringe. Like I watched it several times. I was like, I can't, I can't deal with the scene. Like I just, I don't know if it's supposed to be funny or what. Like I just, it's like it doesn't need to be in here. Like this is a tense moment. I don't need to hear an adult woman say the words pee pee. But um, it could just be a dub thing that that sort of puts us off. But yeah, exactly. Um, the comedic elements are generally handled well, and I think in um, Death Steps in the Dark, they're turned up a notch. Absolutely. <laughs> And I think it works much better here. Yeah, I think we managed to straddle that line here where those moments are funny, but they don't detract too much from the thriller element. It doesn't feel like it's bordering into this like parody um, kind of situation. No. But yeah, like I think the humour is often forgotten about sometimes in the shallow um, or people like sometimes think these films are funny in a retrospective sort of way. You know, like that mindset where people go to laugh at a film and then it's like, let's yeah. laugh at like the, un- the like not so PC moments and fashions and things like that. But yeah, actually these films were quite funny in themselves. Like they're still still funny now like okay like people do find things that are intentionally funny funny but like it's not that there wasn't any humor like intentional humor in the films and um, we have these like comic relief characters and quips and little whimsical moments and that's something I always find that's missing in the neo shadow they don't seem to capitalized on that part of the shadow which is very much like part of the genre yeah and yeah when i was in turin um a couple of years back and i saw the bird with a crystal plumage on the big screen there um something that really struck me when i watched it compared to screening i went to in glasgow like a year prior to that was that people weren't there to mock the film or laugh ironically at it which tend to find with british audiences i presume it's the same with american i don't know about other countries probably the same um but yeah they were like the audience were in turin were laughing at the bits that were intended to be funny and that was so nice yeah. because i find when you when you go to these other screenings people are they're maybe not laughing so much at the bits that are supposed to be funny and laughing at like oh someone's got some stupid flares on or something that i think are tragic now um but yeah the funny moments do hold up and people still enjoy those moments and yeah it's just good to remember that humor is an essential part of the shadow alongside those thriller elements it certainly is sorry i went on um, too much there <laughs> No, 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 not at all. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think some of the best Jolly have those comedic elements, so it doesn't hurt the film at all. I think it works well here, apart from that PP moment, as you say, which is not—it's just completely out of us, and it doesn't—it doesn't bring anything. It's not funny. It's just a, a grown woman needing to go for, for a wee. It's, it's. Yeah, yeah, it's not funny. It's weird because they kind of repeat the bit as well. Like she needs to go to the toilet again. I don't know if it's. You just wonder if it's it's um, a substitution for characterization, like having her go to the toilet, like in um, Jalo Venice when he's walking around sucking on an egg. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. And it's like you're bringing something to the character here by by making them do something. If it is, it's just lacing. If it's supposed to be funny, it's not particularly funny. But also at that moment, if that was supposed to be her character, like she's a bit ditzy or like what she like in this crucial moment. She 
she's way out of the toilet and she's not that scared and she's just in a world of her own or something but you don't really see that earlier on in the film so it kind of doesn't really hang like I think maybe you could get away with that if they'd established that she was a bit accident prone or like walked into like dangerous situations all the time with no regard for personal safety I mean I know she kind of does that with the prostitution bit but again yeah Yeah. maybe just some tighter writing would have made moments like that feel a bit more genuine yeah Gustavo could have handled it I could actually see him writing it for Valentina in Death Walks at Midnight and pulling it off and doing something with it but it just falls flat here because the writing's lacking yeah exactly I completely agree with you on that but yeah like when you reflect on it there's quite a lot of funny moments actually thinking about it yeah I, remember, I just was looking at my notes there and there's another one I remember was um like one of the characters says let's get back to work and then it cuts to a sex scene oh, that was a really <laughs> nice bit of like editing like, I, miss, I, miss that. Yeah, I can't remember who it was now it's gonna annoy me but yeah just things like that it's, there's those silly moments but like, like you say it's that roller coaster effect isn't it you've got to have the humor in order to have the thrills as you mentioned before those once they're jalo trope heavy are going to be happy with this one like we discussed last time with murder clinic and that also pops up in the bird with the crystal bloomage where the weapons are laid out on red velvet mm-hmm. and you also get one of my favorite tropes actually in jalo it's where you get group photos of people (laughs) and you manage to work out a connection so always pleased to see that show up yeah no that's it's always a nice trope actually it's i don't think about that but that's very true that the moment where she um does her character have a name but yeah when she sees the photo and realizes who's in it and flees from the scene and that's a really nice moment it's just i feel again like that character i wish we'd seen a wee bit more of her miss ferretti yeah miss ferretti's character right when she stumbles across that photo that's quite a nice moment yeah and i think on a side note i think there's something very important to address in this film so you've mentioned one of them but i believe we see two cats in this film uh, you said the old lady had one right yeah the old lady gets a jump scare from cat. a cat i can't remember the other one kitty has a cat in the apartment does she, she does and do either of those cats die oh the cats survive cats survive two cats both survive no animal deaths that's a turn up for the book so Peter and I always kind of talk in our private conversations about how every episode of the show we basically talk about some dead or tortured animal, like the guinea pig in our last episode, the cat in autopsy, what else have we had? Cats and crimes of the black cat. Red dog and puzzle. Yeah. R.I.P. Whiskey. Um, So yeah, that was kind of a weird one. I think this is our first film where there's R.I.P. Whiskey. Oh, that, that's, a, that's a hashtag waiting to happen <laughs> yeah if for the next competition use hashtag fragments pod hashtag rip <laughs> to win your own plush uh, dog um without his throat slit preferably um yeah so yeah no dead animals for once so for once yeah we can say that an animal has survived we've bucked the trend so maybe we'll see more animals survive in our next episodes <laughs> Follow, follow fragments of fear for more exciting de- uh, for, for more exciting news on if animals survive or not. In fairness, we don't know if the guinea pig died. You were on the side of it died. I was on the side of it just got stretched slightly. Well, at least he's mentally scarred for life. Yeah, with all that cream cheese smeared on his belly. Yeah. <laughs> 
poor little guy. Oh. Shall we move on and talk a little bit about the ending and the motive? And Yeah, let's do it. Let's start this yeah. fiasco. So at the end of the film, Kitty and Marco head to the Ballet Academy on a nightly trip to look for clues for the killer's identity, a scene that predates Profondo Rosso by a few years. And of course, it doesn't manage to create quite the, the high level of atmosphere and tension as Argento does in Profondo Rosso. But it's a decent enough set piece where the where the killer is menacingly stalking Kitty in the greenhouse. As you've already mentioned, Simon Andrew is very quickly shot and it's left to Lydia to, to describe the motives of him. So Jalier obviously wrapped up pretty quickly as it is. I think when we talked about Crimes of the Black Cat, we kind of remarked on how quickly the explanation um, is revealed and the film finishes off the back of it. But Death Carries a Cane has such a fast resolution. It's very rushed in terms of its explanation, which, yeah, probably lets the film down um, because it does feel very cobbled together. So the explanation that we are given in the film's English version is that Marco murdered the dancers um, due to his own frustration at his lack of success and fear of failure. Uh, presumably he was consumed by envy seeing the burgeoning careers of the dancers around him as his career stagnated and there's a comment by Lydia that Marco was a true paranoid and had the sickness in his mind so I'm not sure if the implication here is that his mind was somewhat poisoned by his bitterness and that sent him psychotic did you say that's that's how i read yeah. it yeah i mean there's a little bit of indication towards marco's feelings of inadequacy and lack of success in the film script earlier on when alberto and marco talk about marco's work and alberto calls it out of date and suggests that kitty's sculptures or dummies or whatever you want to call them and will help freshen things up so alberto kind of undermines marco there and we have this idea that his work's stagnating so i guess that's what that all links to and then there's this issue of impotency in the script which isn't quite clear either and um, Lydia says that Marco purposely pretended to be impotent to protect her because he would have killed her otherwise yeah yeah it's a little bit muddled because it's such a fast explanation I actually typed it out word for word what she said and tried to piece it together but it's a little bit muddled but interestingly and perhaps the most perplexing thing about this film is that in the German version it has a different explanation for the murders um, and one that I find actually to be far more satisfying as a resolution um, albeit it still has issues so the difference between the two versions here is purely in the dialogue rather than the visuals in the German version the explanation behind the murders is that Marco's biggest wish was to become a dancer and he went to the ballet school alongside Martinez and was discussed by her insatiable sexual appetite. He had polio in a limp and was laughed at as a dancer. And Magda Hopkins, um, the dancer that we see earlier, who's murdered in the bed, was one of the people who teased him. So he hired her and killed her to get revenge. And as Marco was consumed more and more by his madness, his impotence grew. Lydia couldn't do anything to help him. And Marco learned about the police investigation and developments through Lydia, um, hence how he was always one step ahead in terms of the murders. And as he committed the murders, his limp returned in a moment of regression. But this time, nobody <laughs> laughed at him. This is out when and like translated the whole of the German thing and like got someone else to look at it and I was like this is a completely different explanation it's a completely different explanation though I I agree with you in that it's 
I mean, it's it's obviously ludicrous here as well, but at least it's it makes slightly more sense than it does in the English version because fair enough feeling like a failure for for your lack of success as a musician, but I don't quite see the, the connection between killing off dancers <laughs> because you feel like a failed musician and why you would have to kill off your girlfriend if you had sex with her. Yeah, it's, it is really confusing. Makes no sense whatsoever. Even though it's <laughs> bringing back this traumatised um, limp, it's... <laughs> is still slightly better yeah it does kind of work more and like i suppose in both scenarios there's this idea of madness fueled by inadequacy and a reflection of marco's struggles to be a successful man and we talk about how these films are a reflection of their time and express um neurosis of the era and time and time again and we look at the thriller or horror film as a manifestation of male anxieties and men's changing place in society and in the case of death carries a cane we have successful women and dancers mcdonald and martinez and hopkins um, as well as kitty the creative and lydia the journalist and that very much emphasizes marco's feelings of inadequacy and we have the scene where lydia laughs at his impotency and cheerfully says to kitty on the phone that um like what was it? what did she says so what's new well marco's impotent yeah yeah exactly so it's like marco's impotent and that's kind of played played for laughs yeah. so uh so we have marco here using an open edged razor as well to murder his victims and you think think of that in terms of his blade allowing him to penetrate his victims in a way he can't sexually um and then there's something strangely interesting then about the faceless dummies uh, that kitty makes and um, because they have these big prominent appendages on full display alberto wants to mutilate them in a performance piece collaboration with marco and it feels quite telling that alberto wants to wade in and reinvigorate marco's work via the use of these dummies that almost look like they're mocking his manhood yeah. but of course all that analysis really hinges on the explanation that marco's impotent but i felt if you read the film in the German explanation, then all those bits kind of align more and it makes sense. Not make complete yeah. sense, but I thought like all those ideas that are present kind of come together. Like you say, I just if it was a case of I'm murdering people because I'm not successful, it's like, well, everyone I know should be dead then because it's not you know, it's like, it just doesn't seem like that much. And he he's got a job as a musician. I mean he seems to be like I'm not saying that you, you wouldn't be frustrated, but um it's not that you know like there's other films where you get this really the sense that protagonists are their life's gone to like gone to seed and they're really miserable and they've been laid off and like it's one thing after another but it doesn't feel like that with this character either so it just i just don't buy it no i mean it's not the first jello where the motive comes from left field but it just feels particularly sort of tacked on here but you say the German version but i'm assuming that the German subs are for the Italian version right like it was the German subs on that X cult or X rated or whatever release, but I I found this information out from an Italian thing, so I don't know if that is. I think it's taken from the German language track, which is different from the Italian language track. Yeah, it's an Italian two Italian sources that I saw that mentioned that the German version was different. So presumably the German version's different from the Italian and English versions. Ah, uh-huh. right. Maybe it's something okay. that I need to check in the Italian language on as well. But I mean, I know like yeah. when you're translating, it's not a complete, you can't translate word for word unless you get like, the gist of it at but least. you can get the gist and like when you compare the two explanations, there's radical differences that you can't even just put down to translation errors. It's like maybe in the German version, they thought this is ludicrous or it doesn't make sense and this makes more sense. So I, it's all speculation really at this point. Um, there's certainly differences there. I mean, when you look at it in the English version, the fact that he's pretending to limp is 
I mean, why would he? I suppose you could just put the cane down, but it's not like if he's alone with the victim, there's not that much point in pretending to have a limp. It would just slow you down. And yeah. it just seems like a quite silly thing for a killer to do. So again, we return to the writing not being great here. I think sometimes when you get like four people involved in the writing, that's, that's sometimes to the detriment of, it tends to be a bit not quite as focused as it could be. Prado's films, I've seen them all now, and they're perhaps not... They're serviceable, but they're not fantastic films, and they're definitely not remembered for their writing, and I think that's... For me, that's one of the main problems of the film is is the writing. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely interesting ideas here. Like I said, I find that the impotency idea quite in, like that's particularly interesting to me. I think there's something in there. I mean, it's a much simpler route to go down. I yeah. think in terms of him feeling inadequate, inadequate, being surrounded by all these beautiful dancers, and potentially him coming on to somebody and being rejected and that sort of thing. It yeah. just seems like a very convoluted, overly complicated motive here. Yeah, it feels like it could have been capitalized. On more and like you say it makes more sense if we know that he was a dancer at the school and maybe you could even have a flashback sequence or something in that where we see that that he had these relations with the characters and that's what's you know this issue with his leg which ties back to the whole cane yeah it just feels like everything would tie in better if he had been a dancer previously and had to give up and pursue music because he had this um leg and like issue with his leg um yeah but yeah, it just, it doesn't, in the English and slash Italian version, it just doesn't really make complete sense. Because like you say, why is he faking this leg injury? What purpose does it have? I mean, to misdirect the police, yeah, sure. But you say he actually uses the cane when he's, like in the greenhouse sequence, we see him hobbling on the cane. I mean, that's to your detriment, surely, yeah. leaning on a cane, rather than maybe just using it when you exit the crime scene in case anyone sees you. I mean, that would make more sense. Again, yeah. like I know some people might think, oh, well, you're picking holes at, like, Jali, and what's the point in that? And I think I saw someone on Twitter today going, oh, well, you know, Jali are ridiculous anyway, or it's just another ludicrous Jali, or, you know, you see that quite a lot. And I, I don't disagree with that at all. Like, yeah, these films have these fantastical elements. They often don't hang together well, but I think sometimes you can forgive those missteps with the plot in some films more than others. And here, I just think there's too many inconsistencies with the ending. Yeah, I was thinking about that as well earlier on today. That um, I suppose one or two of you who who are listening might think, well, why did you pick this film then? If you if you're not great fans of it, well, I think I think it's an interesting title. And as we said, if, if you look at the cast list, it's got all the makings of a great thriller. And I think we're not doing this to pick the film apart. We're doing this because we want to point out what doesn't quite make the film work for us, and what could have been done to better it not to slag it off and not to ridicule it because that's not what we're about no Um, not at all and like we've said in this podcast there's some really interesting elements when we like the comedic moments for the most part and we we think the murder set pieces are brilliant there's some nice sequences some good act like the acting is not brilliant but i mean the actors are all competent (laughs) and it could have been been better considering the the quality of the actors with a better script but again that might be a, a consequence of we don't know that much about production history but looking at it i think it's a fair assumption that they wanted this done fairly quickly to capitalise on the current trend and you couldn't spend two years writing the film. No, yeah, it's like such a quick turnaround. Uh, yeah, so the script is probably not as polished as as even Prado himself would have wanted it to because they didn't have time. It was just a case of like, let's get this sorted and get this on 
on film. Yeah, and I actually did enjoy this film. I think it's like a good good enough watch. It's pretty standard shallow, isn't it? So it's not that I dislike it. I think it's more just frustration that it could be so much better. And it's like just those elements that bring it down. Yeah, that's exactly Yeah, it ticks a lot of the boxes. Like it's it's a good watch. Yeah, it's a solid sort of mid-tier jalo, but it could have been a lot better in you. And it's a sort of missed opportunity to have another great jalo with Neves Navarro and Simon and Andrew. Yeah, completely. It just feels yeah. a bit more like a missed opportunity, but yeah we both we both like the film it's not that we don't don't like it but um yeah there's these nice ideas that just never quite come to fruition no. but like you said it's probably just a victim of not having enough time or too many cooks spoiled the broth that kind of thing yeah yeah talk a little bit about the production history as previously mentioned the film was an Italian and Spanish co-production between Balcazar Producciones Cinematográficas and Cefi Societa Europe's Films Internazionali excuse me for slaughtering both Spanish and Italian titles there and it was shot on location in Rome and at the Paolo Studios in Rome not being able to to ascertain the exact production dates but realistically sometime during either the spring or possibly early autumn in 19 1972 due to the co-production status of the film it's got as we mentioned quite a few overlaps with Luciano Acoli's thrillers from from the early 70s there with not only the actors but also the art director Juan Alberto Soler and it was shot by Jaime de Casas, who hasn't really shot anything of of note at least not for the Jalo fan but edited by Enzo um, Alabiso who was a prolific editor working in the genre and whom Prado worked with several times have you got anything on the production design I mean, again, there's not like a lot to say about production design. As you've already mentioned, um, the film takes place in Rome. It was like filmed on location in Rome. And when Alberto and Kitty are driving around the city, uh, we see the Colosseum and the Victor Emmanuel monument in the background. But for the most part, there's not a lot of exterior shots here. It's certainly not a glamorous jet set style shallow. It feels a lot more gritty in terms of its look and settings. For the most part, the interiors here are rather squalid looking uh, with characters lurking around rundown tenements, houses and CD Park, which reflect the urban sprawl of Rome. And when I talk about fashion and Shelley, I tend to focus on the women's fashions, but I thought it was worth mentioning Marco's uh, very 70s geometric shirt and beige flares, um, as well as Alberto's brown suede coat. Um, so there were some nice male fashion touches. Kitty's wardrobe's a bit more demure here, especially if you're used to her um, looks in films like Death Box um, on high heels and the forbidden photos of a lady above suspicion. But her look as a prostitute is particularly memorable uh, with her suede yellow waistcoat, vinyl miniskirt and afro curly wig um, and of course the snake bag which is a big feature um, which Kitty uses to yeah. lure the killer is particularly impressive with its uh, distinctive copper and silver jewel snake design and then we also have that scene with Magda where she strips off in her um, dancer's leotard and she's got all the glitter on her which I guess doesn't really count as a fashion moment but yeah <laughs> glitter all over your chest <laughs> it's kind of accessorizing maybe we'd call that yeah. Um, but yeah his production design there's not a lot to say with this one um, again maybe if I, I'm not going to say like oh the film would be so much better if it looked a certain way but I think people would maybe be a bit more forgiving if it had those more glamorous elements but then again I don't know if the glamorous elements would really fit entirely maybe with the dance dancers I think that could have been capitalized on a bit more you don't really feel that the dancers tied together either do you it's just yeah 
is going back to to people just like popping up and then disappearing and it's not a greater context really. yeah it's like the characters only appear to be murdered and then disappear you kind of feel like in other films they would have been interwoven into the, the plot a bit more organically i'm just thinking i, I rewatched um the fifth chord the other day and just in comparison how how they introduce all the characters during the new year's eve party mm-hmm, which is really nicely done that would have been one way of of just making sure that it, that it seemed like these characters are actually fit together somehow. Well, maybe even like a rehearsal, not a rehearsal, a perform- yeah. a perform- you know, if the film opened with a performance put on by the ballet school with um, Simon Andre's character playing the piano and we see these different dancers or a flashback or something, you know, like something like that would be better. Yeah. You touched yeah. on like how the, the dancing and music doesn't really, they don't really hang together in the plot. And I think, you know, it's that thing of these films often had characters in creative tight, um, creative jobs or they had links to the arts, you know, obviously Birds of Crystal Plumage is the, the whole association with art so it feels maybe it's like another element that's crowbarred in like let's have a creative let's have a dance school let's have a musician but the creative aspect doesn't doesn't really work no nothing much is made of it and really. it, could, it could have been really capitalized on like everybody loves yeah. to spray in a twill and films like that that have this prominent dance aspect prominent dance aspect so it would have been really cool to just bring more of that dancing element into death carries a cane i think i would have really liked that it would have worked better the score was written by Roberto Pregadio, not the most prolific composer in terms of Jalley, but he's written the the great score to Silvio Amadio's Smile Before Death, as well as several Italian superhero scores as well. And as usual, there are quite a few romantic themes here, sort of reminding me slightly of the score for Wait Until Dark, because it sounds like it's got like an out-of-tune piano. Some nice dramatic cues here as well. Overall, this is quite a breezy Euro Lounge score that unfortunately hasn't been released on cd or vinyl as far as i know much like the rest of the film it's perhaps not the most memorable one but it's a nice score and it'd be good to see it released on on disc at some point was it a score that you that sort of stood out for you i wouldn't say it stood out particularly you know if we're comparing it to the great pantheon of uh Jali scores but i really like the kind of main theme and i particularly enjoyed uh, the music that plays in the murder set pieces i thought that was a really nice ominous piece yeah so i i, I liked it but i wouldn't say it's my favorite i think that's a problem isn't it with the film in general it's just everything's a bit middle of the road but yeah no i enjoyed i enjoyed it but yeah it wasn't it sticks in your mind after you watch it maybe not the next day no something (laughs) like that and the film received its censorship visa with an 18 certificate on november 16th 1972 and considering it was more of a regional release it did decent box office 279 million lira slightly less than sergio martino's all the colors of the dark at 294 million lira but slightly more than martino's other 1972 Jallo, Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key The Friend Sex Murders which took in 265 million liras and Tonino Valeri's My Dear Killer 250 Prado's next project will be a film cashing in on another popular trend Jack London's The Call of the Wild mm-hmm. that had been very popular in, in Italy and Lucio Fulci's films The White Fang and its sequel Challenge to White Fang had been they'd been hugely okay. successful making 2 billion lira at the box office and other saw the potential in this kind of film so Prado and quite a few others tried to repeat the success. Prado's film was called I Figli uh, di Santa Bianca the, the Children and White Fang which 
unlike Fulcher's film had a contemporary setting and told the story of an Alsatian who rescues a baby kidnapped by Luciano Rossi. The film, which was released in 1974, ended up being a, a fairly big box office success and ended up being Prado's biggest hit during his career, making nearly 550 million lira. And he returned to the giallo genre once more in 1976, making Death Steps in the Dark, which was released in early 1977. But by this time, as we mentioned before, the genre was on the way out and the film struggled. It made less than 100 million lira. Following the failure of that film, Prado abandoned directing and started working in distribution until 1988 when he returned with erotic drama Thrilling Love. We've both seen this dubbed in Turkish, so (laughs) you don't have to. Yeah, really. Is is that far enough to... I think that yeah, that's more than enough yeah to say yeah, not not particularly great. But interestingly, we both watched it on the same day without even saying to each other we were watching yeah. it. Um, so we both endured that yeah. So you don't have not his best work. Not his best work. I th- I found a, an interesting parallel to another director that we've talked about on the podcast, Sergio Pastore. They both took a break from directing and came back came back like several years later. I think we all understand that budget constraints limits what you you are able to accomplish. But I feel like exactly in the same case with Pastore that the films they made later are so amateurishly put together that you sort of wonder how they managed to put together a a theatrical release film only a decade earlier. I mean, it feels like they lost all sort of touch on what works in terms of of direction, in terms of pacing, in terms of everything, really. (laughs) I was thinking in Turkish. (laughs) It's difficult to judge a film fairly if you can't understand what they're saying, obviously. But I mean, just looking at the way it's put together in terms of how long the scenes go on, in terms of like the pacing of the film overall, even if, if you don't understand the dialogue... You, you see if it works or not. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a drop-off in quality, like quite a considerable drop-off in quality when you look at something like Thrilling Love. And I know we've talked about issues with Death Carries a Cane and there's issues in some of his other works. Um, yeah, it's just quite staggering, like the difference. Quite sad, really. But then, I mean, you understand, yeah, they're limited by budgets and the changing kind of film industry and all these other elements. But yeah, just really quite sad to see like something like that get put out. It's not something that you need to seek out. I, I mean, I enjoyed some of Brad earlier films like especially 28 minutes for three million dollars i thought was as i said a a charming heist thriller Mm -hmm. if you like that sort of yeah that sort of 60s heist thriller i think that's it's worth watching but you can easily skip thrilling love and not been able to find any box office figures i'm not even sure if it was released in the cinema or not but he retired altogether from the industry following that Mm -hmm. film and he seems to spend his time or he published a couple of books in the 2000s and several titles written in the late 2000 early 2010s some interesting films, but perhaps not the career that he wanted in the end, and a bit of a journeyman director. Yeah, certainly. Do you want to wrap it up? Death Carries a Cane will undoubtedly appeal to those who are fans of Nevis Devaro and her films Luciano Arcoli, who have exhausted their collaborative efforts and want to move on to something in a similar vein. Whilst Death Carries a Cane isn't the most satisfactory shallow in terms of its execution and solution, it's still an enjoyable thriller with tense murder set pieces, humorous exchanges and Argento-like flourishes. Um, it's formulaic, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. With a tighter script and a bit more visual dynamism, I reckon this could have been regarded as a shallow classic, but as it stands, it's a perfectly serviceable albeit run-of-the-mill entry into the genre. You've managed to sum it up really well there. What's surprising to me is considering the, the sort of the fairly big names and the fact that it's quite trope-heavy, that it hasn't had a more recent release than a 15-year-old German limited edition DVD release. 
Yeah, it's very odd. I was thinking that um, yesterday. I was like, I'm, I'm surprised that when you're, you're looking at some of the films that are getting released at the minute, that, that one's not a film to label. But, um, yeah, because you'd think this is a quite easy sell. And I also think it'd be quite helpful to have, you know, extras on the film. And I don't even just with that stuff with the ending, there's not a lot of information on it. And that's something that I've just kind of stumbled across. And then you go through it and you realize, yeah, that is the case. Yeah, maybe if you had a new release that had that the, almost like the alternative ending with that German ending available in English and things, that would be be quite a nice addition to release I think and I think it would look a bit better on Blu-ray I don't think it's ever going to look great because it's not really a visually stunning film but yeah it would benefit no. as always as every film does benefit from um, an upgrade For our listeners who pledge to us on Patreon, we can reveal our next bonus episode is a discussion of some of our favourite characters of the Jalo, and Peter and I will select a handful of characters that we find particularly memorable and discuss why they've resonated with us. If you want to reach us on social media, you can reach out on Twitter to Rachel underscore Nisbet or Senior Ward. You can follow us on Instagram where there is Fragments Pod and on Facebook as Fragments Pod. And you can email us at fragmentspod at gmail.com. The music you hear playing is by Osox, Eric Adrian Lee and Robbie Augsburger and their excellent cover of Ritz Ortolani's Seven Bloodstained Orchids. You can find this and much more at Castle Osox. That concludes our episode on Death Carries a Cane. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion on the film and we're eager to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, We look forward to joining you again next month. Until then, good night. Night. (laughs) Yay, we're done. I feel hungry. (laughs) I was like, I'm so hungry.